Hi, this is co-host Patrick Baird. I'd like to tell you about my new military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy. Decorated officer Frank Ortega reaches his final duty station. An aging Navy Corvette, the ISS Persistent, stationed in a solar system on the furthest edge of colonized space. Located light years from the war front against the mysterious enhancers, the Persistent is crewed by a motley collection of fleet rejects and raw recruits. Life aboard the ship remains slack and unmilitary until they receive a shocking signal. Most of the rest of the fleet was destroyed in a major battle. The Persistent is left alone to guard its solar system against the inevitable invasion they have no chance of stopping. The Nowhere Navy is available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback formats. Thank you. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 34 of Unknown Orbits, Cities in Flight by James Blish. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be talking about the Fix-Up series from James Blish, Cities in Flight. It's a series consisting of four books all of which were taken from a variety of stories written over the years by Mr. Blish. And they all are based around this idea of space okies, which is taken from the term that was used for the survivors of the Dust Bowl who traveled from Oklahoma or elsewhere in the Midwest and the South during the Depression for a better life in California and the West. The basic idea behind Cities in Flight is that a technology is developed called the Spin Dizzy, which is an anti-gravity technology that allows entire cities to be lifted off the Earth and to travel out into space. The four books in this fix-up series are They Shall Have Stars. The second one is A Life for the Stars. Third one is Earthman Come Home. And the fourth is The Triumph of Time. So They Shall Have Stars is sort of a prequel. It's, to me, one of the less interesting ones in the series because there is no actual Okies in that story. It is basically a completely different story that just feeds into the others. Right. I wonder if he was putting together this fix-up and he needed more length, perhaps, that the other three stories weren't enough for his publisher And his publisher said, well, do you got something else you could rework to fit in here? So They Shall Have Stars tells the story of the building of the Jupiter Bridge, which is a crazy idea. It's building a platform on Jupiter that goes from the upper orbit of Jupiter all the way down to the surface of the planet. And it's the most massive engineering task ever undertaken by humankind, and it's in progress. So throughout that book, they're building the bridge or, you know, running into all kinds of technical problems and accidents and storms and things like that. And at the same time, they're also working secretly on this anti-aging formula. 
I don't know how the two things relate, but somehow Blish knits it together in this political thriller, which is what it really is. It's more of a political thriller than anything else, because the background is that the Soviet Union and America are still the two superpowers in the future, but the United States is becoming more and more like the Soviet Union all the time. It's becoming a very authoritarian country. There's a future version of the FBI, which is very oppressive and almost like the KGB in Russia. So there's this constant political battle between the senator who's pushing all of this and the authoritarian authorities who are trying to undermine him or whatever. So anyway, in the process of building the bridge on Jupiter, they discover the spin-dizzy technology, which is the anti-gravity technology that enables cities to lift off in the later books. So how did you feel about They Shall Have Stars? I thought it was okay, but it seemed like an odd add-on to the rest of the books. As I said, it was completely different from the other books. I don't think it really belongs there. And I think your theory is right, that he needed more length. And that's something we've seen in a lot of other stories. Fix up novels. Yeah. That Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. There's a couple stories in there you could probably point to that feel like they might have been shoehorned in to the concept a little bit. I said in a previous episode that there were only two books that I threw away. This is the other one. It was a political thriller in the Middle East. There were five chapters of a guy in Russia and his life there and his manipulating of his wife and the colonel to get the permits to do yada, 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 yada. And then finally he gets to the Middle East, and I'm not kidding, his only interaction in the plot is a character is traveling down a road at night. He comes across him at a crossroads, and he says, don't go that way. That's where the army is. And then he immediately gets shot. <laughs> I, I was incredibly pissed yeah, off. That's filler. That's filler. So it was okay. I enjoyed reading it, so I, I didn't really have any problem with it. If it would have been a standalone story, I would have given it a thumbs up. I did like the politics of it. That was really what it was more all about than anything else. That's probably where we differ in taste. I don't go towards political machinations. Oh, okay. I didn't really realize that about you and me. So the next one, A Life for the Stars, in this one... A young boy, 15 years old at the time, Chris DeFord, goes to the outskirts of the city of Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is scheduled to lift off into space. And he wants to watch. He's a kid from the country. You know, he lives on a remote cabin with his family and kind of living off the land sort of thing. And he's sitting there waiting to watch the city take off. And he winds up being kidnapped by police or soldiers from from Scranton. Press gangs. Yeah, they were basically a press gang. And they kidnap him and take him into Scranton. And then he winds up having to take off into outer space with the city of Scranton. I really didn't like the press gang thing. I thought it gave the wrong tone to the beginning of the story. However, my feeling is, is that the author was trying to start off with the juvenile science fiction book of the kid thrust into other circumstances, like Citizen of the Galaxy, where he has a 16-year-old kid who has a stable life, and then it's all destroyed, and he has to go out in the world on his own and, and make his way. And I think that's what the author was trying to do, but it just, I don't think it rang well here. That may be a good theory, because this story definitely fits that template. So uh, this takes place several decades past the previous book. The spin-dizzy technology is not only allowing cities to be lifted into orbit, but it also creates a shield over the cities 
So that's how they're able to travel through space is they're basically in a dome created by a spin dizzy shield. And it also introduces what happened with that anti-aging drug. There's this new concept of citizenship where if you're in one of these cities, you're given the anti-aging drug only if you prove yourself to be useful. So if, if you have a useful skill, like let's say you're a carpenter or a farmer or a policeman or something like that, you're given the anti-aging drug, which extends your life for 40 years. I think you have to take it every 40 years or something like that, and it keeps extending your life. It's a reward for being useful and being compliant to the authoritarian civilization. So the problem for this kid is that he's a 15-year-old kid, a bumpkin from the country, and he doesn't really have any specific skills that are useful, so he can't really be a citizen. What happens to people who are not citizens on these cities, in some cases, is if they find you and they figure out you're not useful— you get thrown out into space. That's the tension of the story is this kid's trying to find his way, trying to find a way to fit in and become useful and grow up as a young man. But in the middle of this, as part of a scheme that's put together by this policeman who befriends him, he transfers from Scranton, Pennsylvania to the city of New York, which obviously is a much bigger city where it's easier for him to blend in more and there's more opportunity for him. So from that point, it's a story of him growing and maturing and learning and proving his worth, which kind of fits into your idea of a juvenile type story. And that's really what the rest of the story is, is it's this Chris DeFord rises to the position of city manager of New York City, which is the number two most powerful person in New York City. And it's a position that they created for him because he was so useful. I don't recall if that was the case, but if that's you, you read it more recently than I did. Yeah, they had city managers in smaller towns, and because he was so great, they decided New York could use that system as well. Right, and again, there's a lot of politics in this story. There's a mayor of New York City, John Amalfi, who's the number one most powerful character in the city, takes this kid under his wing and recognizes that he has this sort of mind for politics. So that's how he winds up rising to that position. I really like this story. This one was pretty fun. There were a lot of things that happened. I'm not going to go into plot details here, but basically, like I said, it's all a bunch of political manipulations that help keep this John Amalfi in power and allow him to do the things that he's planned for and wants to do with the city. So it was good. I enjoyed it. I thought it was more enjoyable and a better overall story than the first book. I like the book, too. I just had some issues with the first chapter. I thought that how the kid got forced into the city was a little rough and unnecessary and frankly was a gimmick that was picked up and dropped, never heard from again. And it was, he hand-waved it as well. Yeah. I think at one point the city manager in Scranton says, oh, those darn press gang laws, we didn't really want to do it. You could easily have had the kid delivering a package to someone oh, and yeah, accidentally like, like, goes Yeah, up. like he didn't realize he was within the city limits. You could have very easily accomplished the same thing without resorting to that. But it did introduce the character of the policeman who later befriended him. So I can see why he chose to do it that way. I think it was his way of introducing this character and having him start out as kind of a menacing 
evil character seemed like it, and then he softens and becomes almost a mentor to this kid. Again, kind of on the juvenile... Uh, the, the older male role model, the rough older man who takes in a younger kid under his wings, like, hey, kid, let me uh, show you the ropes here. That's a very juvenile trope. And the friend at school who goes the other way does it wrong. That's right. That was in this story. He befriended another kid who was trying to become a citizen, and that kid didn't have a happy ending. He did not become a citizen. Good point. I'd forgotten about that, but that's very much a juvenile trope as well. So that was uh, Life for the Stars, book two. The third book, Earthman Come Home, I'm just going to say right up front, this was my favorite of the four. I really love this because this one is just pure space opera, and it's magnificent space opera because now we have the city of new york going deeper and deeper into space and this is maybe a decade or more later and the krista ford character from the last book is dead they just killed him off he doesn't even show up in the third book john amalfi is still mayor of new york by the way i haven't read this one i was looking forward to it (laughs) i'm sorry i'm sorry spoiler alert Anyway, I'm not going to go too deep into the details then, but basically there's like a galactic depression on for all of these cities. The economy's suffering a little bit and they're having a hard time finding work because what these cities do is they go over to a planet and offer their services because they have manufacturing facilities, they have repair facilities. Expertise. Expertise, all kinds of valuable services and skills that they offer to these planets. And a lot of these are like colonial planets, which are underdeveloped. So they will land on a planet and help them mine their resources and take a cut of those resources and get food from the colonists and all of that. So they're having a hard time getting these jobs. And there's this wonderful concept of a hobo jungle which is basically a collection of all these cities floating around this one solar system, waiting for work and vying against each other, trying to underbid each other to get these jobs. So it's very much kind of a flashback to the Depression era here on Earth, only it's these cities in space. It goes from there into a wild series of events and machinations that involve these cities banding together and attacking Earth, the city of New York kind of pulling all the strings with these other cities and joining up with this deadly alien city. And they wind up at the end of it being flung out to the outer edges of the galaxy where they discover a whole new bounteous area for them to exploit. It's great space opera, and I really, really enjoyed it. This is one of my favorite reads In the last year since we've been doing all of this reading for this podcast, this is one of my favorite things I've read. I'm a little disjointed on this myself because when I read The Triumph of Time, which is the fourth book in the series, I didn't know it was a series. So you probably read, what, an anthology that had the original story that became a fix-up? Is that how you... No, it was the novel. So there was a separately published novel. It was probably a paperback at a used bookstore, and the title attracted me. Well, since you haven't read the third one, we won't go into a lot more detail into it. I'm highly recommending it to you because I think it's really fantastic. The fourth book, The Triumph of Time, they've been cast out to the outer edges of the galaxy. And while they're out there, they discovered that there's another universe 
coming in collision with ours that's going to destroy both universes. All I'm going to say about The Triumph of Time is it's okay. It's my least favorite of the four books because it gets very metaphysical. I don't know whether he wrote it or revised it during the 1960s. I don't think I looked into that. But it sure feels like that sort of navel-gazing science fiction... New wave. ...of the 1960s that was very metaphysical. And coming after a really terrific piece of space opera, this one was kind of a letdown as a conclusion to the series, in my opinion. Although destroying the universe, I mean, you can't get any bigger than that. But still, the focus of it being so metaphysical to me was a bit of a letdown. I really liked the final note in there. I'll say this. It was very well written. Blish is a really solid writer. And maybe we should talk about that a little bit. He had a very interesting career. Blish did win a Hugo Award. He won for his novel, A Case of Conscience, in 1959, beating out... We Have Fed Our Seas, also known as The Enemy Stars by Paul Anderson, Who by Algie Burtis, Have Spacesuit Will Travel by Robert Heinlein. That's a pretty well-known work. Kind of surprising that it would be in there. And then Time Killer, also known as Immortality Incorporated by Robert Sheckley. So that, that was some pretty decent competition. Now, the thing is, he was never really regarded as like one of the great grandmasters of science fiction. He was always considered one of those guys who's maybe a second tier writer of the era. He was admired for his scholarship. So he wrote some scholarly books or some nonfiction books about science fiction that were well regarded. Some people thought that a lot of his writing was pulpy, which I think is pure snobbery because Yes, the third book in Cities in Flight, very much space opera. And there was a period in the 50s and 60s when space opera was kind of looked down upon by the science fiction establishment. So maybe that might have hurt him to some degree. But like I said, I thought that was really very, very well written space opera with some very interesting ideas in it. He wrote a lot of teleplays. So Blish got involved with the Star Trek original TV show. He was responsible for creating the character Harry Mudd. He wrote or co-wrote a couple of episodes. But the main thing that he's remembered for for Star Trek, and this might have been what hurt his reputation perhaps, is he did all of the novelizations of the original Star Trek episodes and the, I guess you'd call it the extended universe, where they wrote additional stories based on the characters from the original Star Trek TV series. Why would that hurt his reputation? Well, think about it. If you're the quote-unquote science fiction establishment in the 1960s and you're trying to promote the idea that science fiction is worthy of literary recognition, you know, so you're going to look down your nose at things like space opera. You're going to scorn the TV shows, even the better ones like Star Trek. So writing the novelizations for a TV show that some science fiction writers would have looked down upon for having a bad science and melodramatic plots. And novelizations are, I hate to say it, but they're kind of looked upon, or it used to be, as pouring yourself out a little bit as a writer. Well, the books themselves always seem to be a cash grab. Well, sure they were. But, you know, they were very popular. So he did a good job. He wrote them well. People loved them. People enjoyed them. They sold well. But, you know, I think just at that point in science fiction history, it was probably not the best time to be affiliating yourself with the TV science fiction show. One small note that I know, Steve, you're not impressed by. He was a big fan of the fantasy writer James Branch Cabell, 
who is somebody I really love. He actually edited the Cabell Society magazine Kalki, which I'm highly impressed by. And I'm sure probably none of our listeners <laughs> will give one hoot about James Branch Cabell, but he was a very well-admired writer from the 1920s and 1930s, who, if you're a real fantasy fan, I think you should probably be a fan of James Branch Cabell. But that's a complete digression. I did not get a sense of his fiction when I looked him up. You're telling me he was a fantasy writer in the 1920s. That alone puts him out of my familiar... And most fantasy fans. I mean, there's a lot of fantasy fans who probably think that the genre of fantasy began either in the 1930s when Robert E. Howard published his Conan stories or J.R.R. Tolkien published The Lord of the Rings in the 1950s. But as somebody who grew up reading Ballantine Paperback's adult fantasy series, which was edited by the highly underrated Lynn Carter, who went back and dredged up all these great fantasy works going all the way back to the 1800s. William Morris, Lord Dunsany, E.R.R. Edison's The Worm Ouroboros, and James Branch Cabell. These are all really great fantasy novels that were influential on people like J.R.R. Tolkien. Lord Dunsany was very influential on H.P. Lovecraft. They were important works that are largely forgotten and overlooked by a lot of people nowadays. And this is maybe our biggest digression we've ever had on this show. You're right that there is an effort to trace science fiction roots back as far as people can. I mean, we talk about Wells. We even talk about Hawthorne. Yeah, that's the thing, is that science fiction, almost everyone agrees. Oh, yeah, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells founding fathers. Sometimes they claim Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So there's no lack of respect in science fiction for the old masters. Whereas in fantasy, like I said, there seems to be this almost revisionist view that fantasy didn't really begin until the 1930s or probably more likely the 1950s. I could do a whole episode on all of that, but that would be slightly outside of our purview. Maybe when we get over 100 episodes, we'll think about it. Yeah, we worry about getting past 1966 a lot. We don't really worry as much about going before 1926. Oh, yeah. We talked in a previous episode about Unknown Worlds magazine, the influential fantasy magazine that John W. Campbell edited in the 1940s and dipped our toe into the discussion there a little bit. There's definitely something there that'd be worthy of an episode. Like I said, this is probably our greatest digression we've ever done to Do this point. Do you want point. me to bring us back? Bring us back, Steve. Say, Pat, it occurs to me that there's two kinds of devices in science fiction, ones that are an extension of known science or prediction of, and others where an author just says, hey, what if we could just do this thing? You know, that's a great thought, and that brings us around to our additional discussion for this episode. We've come up with two terms that describe this dichotomy in science fiction. The idea of conceptual science which is, like you said, something that an author said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, and they basically invent a technology or a science that helps them to tell a story. We're calling that conceptual science. And then there's speculative science, which is an extension of existing science, something that's already been postulated and theorized and tested by actual scientists. I'm going to throw out a couple examples here. Let's just start out with Cities in Flight. The main technology out of these stories is the spin dizzy, which is the anti-gravity device used to lift cities out into space. 
which conveniently also solves the problem of maintaining an atmosphere? I would say that you could actually make a case that there was conceptual science and speculative science in the cities in flight with the spin-dizzy propulsion technology being speculative because it was based explicitly, and I think he actually mentions it in the story, on some work done by a scientist named PMS Blackett. At the time that he was writing this book, Mr. Blackett's work was already being discredited by actual scientists. The idea of a spin-dizzy or Mr. Blackett's work is that you can create anti-gravity devices through the manipulation of electromagnetism, magnetic fields more specifically. Well, I believe part of his theory was that high rotational rates would have an anti-gravitic effect. Thus, the spin-dizzy. Right. You get the electromagnetic field rotating very rapidly and suddenly you have the power to overcome gravity. Would you like to know who is today's greatest proponent of that theory? I'd like to hear it from you, but I have some additional information that makes this a lot more interesting. Is it Richard C. Hoagland? Well, you're close. You're very close. So by the time that Blish published these books, Blackett's science had been knocked down by actual physicists. And there was a very wide divide within the scientific community about the idea of the connection between electromagnetism and anti-gravity. One of the groups that really picked up the anti-gravity flag and ran with it was the UFO community. Ah. A lot of the advocates for UFOs are postulating that UFOs are driven by anti-gravity devices. So there was a taint associated with anti-gravity theories for many decades because it was felt like it was going into fringe science with UFOs and that sort of thing. There has been recent science that has come back to the idea of, if not explicitly linking electromagnetism to anti-gravity, but at least creating a theoretical framework for anti-gravity. I know this because that is what I based the science for my book, The Nowhere Navy, which is now out in paperback and Kindle. I chose for my device to get out to the stars uh, an anti-gravity science. So yes, the spin dizzy itself was almost as soon as it was published, it was obsolete. So the debate around anti-gravity and spin dizzies, I think it gives you a really good idea of what speculative science is all about in science fiction. To one degree or another, it involves engaging with existing scientific theories. Because I'm going to tell you, as a new science fiction writer, one of the first things that I realized and came to understand is that for a lot of stuff like interstellar travel, time travel, all of these different fundamental tropes of science fiction, there is no settled science for any of it. It's all theoretical. The theories have changed over the decades. It's a fluid situation in terms of the actual science. So what you have to do as a writer is you have to make a bet and say, well, I think this is the most likely answer and go with it. Or do what I did and just say, well, I'm going to pick something that's feasible theoretically and don't worry about whether 50 years from now your story is going to be considered ridiculous. Because that's what you have to do. You have to write or you have to pick a fight. Okay. Shall I go into conceptual science fiction ideas? Please do. We call it conceptual because it is based on a concept and not science at all. It's a what if. What if uh, you could travel back in time? Yes. And the examples we were talking about earlier include tricky tonnage, 
by, what was his name? That was by Malcolm Jameson. That's it. And in that story, the device is, what if we could take the weight out of mass? Which, when it was written, there was no science backing it up. And today, would have plenty of science that says this is a ridiculous question to ask in the first place. But it's very conceptual. What if we could just take a mass, everything's there except the weight, and then build a story around it? And in this case, it was a somewhat humorous story. You know, conceptual science in science fiction, to me, is every bit as valid and good as speculative science. Because you're still asking a question that leads to a very interesting story. And I'll give you another example of conceptual science, psychohistory from foundation. There's nothing, there's no science at all behind the idea of psychohistory. Psychohistory, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is this math that Harry Seldon, this brilliant mathematician, comes up with that allows him to fairly accurately predict the future of a society he theorizes that the galactic empire is going to collapse very soon and 10,000 years of barbarism will follow. His predictions are basically accurate. And the whole point of the foundation books is that Selden and other scientists gather together all the science and knowledge of the human race and protect it in a place called the foundation on the furthest limits of the galaxy so that rather than having a 10,000 year period of barbarism, he reduces it down to only 1,000 years. That's Candle for Leibowitz. I haven't read that one yet. Well, I have. I read it in high school. That's coming up on our reading list. We are going to be talking about that shortly. But there's no science at all behind psychohistory. He didn't base that on anything. That's just an idea that Asimov came up with, or perhaps John W. Campbell. It's always a little tricky. It's a vague, undefined combination of psychology and history. Yeah, he just basically said, well, there's math involved. Yeah. That's it. It's a lot of math. Campbell was involved in Dianetics eventually, so he had that interest. Yes, he did. So do we have any other either speculative or conceptual science in science fiction? We have a contentious one. Okay. The Slow Glass series was completely conceptual. The idea was, what could you do with a pane of glass that it takes 10 years for the light to go through? And the light is, it's not diffused light. You put this thing in a mountain side and it absorbs the view for 10 years and then you hang it in your apartment and you can see the mountain. Right. There's a whole series of stories on this. Right. And many different writers apparently used this or a similar idea in their stories. Now, I just did a little very brief scanning of some Wikipedia articles and apparently there has been some scientific work on this idea. It's kind of like the anti-gravity, where for a while there, it was considered bad science. Then it's come around again to where, no, it's theoretically possible. And I believe in the case of slow glass that they've actually done some experiments that have shown that you can at least to some degree slow down the passage of light through a, a medium. Yes, they got it down to feet per second speeds. Right. But it is a cloud of ultra-cold rubidium atoms which is not something you can hang on your apartment wall. Right. So this would be a great example of something that started out as conceptual science, then it would become speculative, and it might be more interesting in some ways. That's a really good example because it spans the two ideas. So do you have any other thoughts on the two different varieties of science or how, as a writer, the role of science plays into your writing? While I'm open to conceptual ideas, and I think those are the most fun, I tend more towards the ordinary speculative ideas. Science is a little more important maybe to you than it is to me. Yes. 
Is there another fix-up book that you like and or admire? Well, Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was never known as a hard science fiction writer. He was very influential to me when I was very young and I was reading science fiction. I read everything I could get my hands on by Bradbury. So I think that he has influenced me going all the way back to the beginning more towards conceptual science fiction and the idea of science being part of the background elements of your writing rather than the essence or a central necessary element of your writing. Mine would be Canticle for Leibowitz, which I mentioned earlier. Okay. It's the sort of story I admire and wish I could write like, but it's too different from my style. Yeah. We all have that problem as writers. There's certain writers we really love, and maybe at some point in our life, we try to imitate them and we realize it doesn't fit our style. Yeah. Any final thoughts on science and science fiction or Cities in Flight? That would be it. Okay. Well, that's it for episode 34. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.